Why? Why? And I don't know if you caught the, the question in, uh, in Psalm 94 that was read before, but it was the question of, why, why, why so long, God? Why? You can almost hear the cry of frustration, the cry of anger um, in the psalmist. Why don't you come and set things right? Why do you let it continue, God? And one of the uh, interesting things as you read the psalms, and maybe you don't know this, but the psalms were the ancient Hebrew hymnal. They sang from it. So that meant from time to time the people would get up and they would sing, Why, God? Or, What's going on? Why is it taking so long? They had a depth because it was their hymnal that I think sometimes, you know, we tend to move into different fads, and I, I love what our worship team does, um, but there's, you know, it's like anything. You can't beat God's Word. You just can't. And there's some incredible depth in what happens uh, in that. And so part of what I guess I want to say from that is that questions are not only natural, they're, they're Christian, or at least Jewish. I can say that for sure, you know. It is a part of faith, the question, to ask why, to wonder, and to not always be satisfied with what we know, but also to learn how to live with that lack of satisfaction. To that end, we could probably talk about the question today, the question of evil, why God allows evil in the world, or why He doesn't do things. We could probably have ten sermons on that and still not exhaust anywhere near the questions. In fact, every sermon would probably raise ten other questions, wouldn't it? And it doesn't mean we don't, we don't go about talking about it, but it just means that I don't want you to walk away going, gee, I don't have all the answers. Um, there are some questions, by the way, that come around in life uh, and that, that have a period of time become a, kind of a fad question. And uh, one of the questions you may not have contemplated, but some people did for a period of time, was how many angels could be on the top of a pen? Something very significant, don't you think? But that was truly a question that theologians thought about. But for some reason, we don't think about it anymore. Maybe it's because it really doesn't make any difference, and there's no way we could tell anyway. But the question of evil, it makes a difference, doesn't it? It touches us. It means something to us. And it is one reason why many people stay away from God. Because they can't put together the idea of a good, all-powerful, loving God and the reality they see around them of evil. So if you feel like that, you're in good company with most of the rest of humanity that asks questions and that wonders. But I do think there are some things that the the Scriptures tell us. Psalm 94 is a cry, is a psalm of, of lament. God, why? Why don't you just fix it? Why don't you just take care of it? Why are we still experiencing this? God, don't you see? Yes, of course you see. And you who do evil, don't forget. God sees. He hears. He knows. And then Romans 8, which was read at the end, we're going to look at both of these in little bits, has this incredible statement that declares that God can take evil and turn it into good in our lives. It doesn't mean that God makes evil good, but God can use evil, that evil is not wasted in the life of someone who knows God and who loves God. But He works at it. He works it. So I want to talk a little bit about evil and what the Scriptures say about evil. And the first thing that the Scriptures say about evil is this, is evil is personal. Psalm 94 is very clear. He's not just ranting and raving against some um, evil that's out there. He's saying these evil people 
Evil is done. It's wrong. Psalm 94.2 says this, Arise, O judge of the earth, and give the proud what they deserve. For the psalmist, evil has a face. It's the face of people. It's the face of humanity. People who are doing things that cause hurt and pain to other people. In this case, to God's people. You know, evil, I think, in the scriptures is talked about as not being something in and of itself. It's not something that God created. In other words, you might say, well, why did God create evil? If he's good, why did he create evil? And the answer back is, evil isn't something. It's a lack of what should be there. It's just like darkness isn't, an, isn't something in and of itself. It's an absence of light. If you bring light, there's no darkness. When you do what is right and good, there is no evil. But when the good is not done, then evil rushes in like a vacuum. And evil can be either something we do to someone or it can be something we don't do that should be done. But evil is a lack of what should be. Where there should be love and kindness and equal or higher concern for the other person, but it does, it's not there, then evil will fill that hole. One of the reasons that God's Word talks so much about the commands, the do this and don't do that, is because when we don't do what we should, evil will fill that gap every time. Wrong will come when good doesn't happen. So the psalmist says evil is personal. It has a personal face. But you know that, and that's true. For about maybe 80% of evil, you can trace back to someone or something. Someone who did something to someone else or someone who hurt or someone who didn't love or whatever. But what about, what about the earthquakes? What about the tsunamis? What about the genetic diseases? What about the other diseases that hit people? Maybe smallpox that devastated. Maybe um, the plague. Earthquakes. What, what about those? Isn't God responsible for those things? They're natural, quote-unquote, disasters. Isn't it God's fault that those things are there? And the Bible says, no, it's not. And we may not like that answer. And I tell you what, if you don't like the answer, maybe you say, I'm okay with that. Guess what? Talk to most people out there. They don't like that answer. And I think to some degree we need to think about why is that true? Why is it not God's fault when there is a, is a hurricane or when there's an earthquake or when there's a genetic disease that ravages and devastates a life? Romans 8, uh, chapter, uh, Romans 8 verses 22 talks a lot about the suffering that is happening in the world. And, and uh, it says, yet we suffer, what we suffer now is nothing that can be compared to the glory to be revealed to us later. Verse 19 then follows, For all of creation um, is waiting eagerly for the future day when, God's, uh, when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation is subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in the glorious freedom of death and decay. Verse 22, For we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up until the present. In other words, what it's saying is the world that we live in is broken. It's not what it should be. It's not the way God created and intended it to be. It is broken. And it talks in this, in this uh, chapter of Romans about this curse. It's cur- the creation is cursed. What, what's the curse? Well, if you know very much about the Bible, you know you go back to the third chapter 
of Genesis all the way back at the beginning. When the first man and the first woman had everything they needed, everything that would give them life with God and with each other, and they said, it's not enough. The evil one came to them and said, God's holding out on you. And they said, yeah, you're probably right. And so they went and took something that they shouldn't, and that curse has had incredible ramifications throughout our world, our lives, our bodies, our minds, everything. We're broken. The world is broken. And I think, to be honest, that this is the one great truth that, as modern people, we have the hardest time getting our heads around and actually believing. And it's not surprising, to be very honest, that a lot of people who don't have a commitment of faith and, or believe in God think, well, that's a bunch of rubbish. But God tells us from beginning to end that there's a brokenness that happens because we as humans broke the world that God made. It's broken. And it's our fault. We did it. Sin is rebellion against God, and it has devastating consequences, more than it seems at first in our lives and the lives of others. It's like a stone that you see and you put into, you throw a stone into a lake. It's not just where that stone goes in, but it's the ripple effect that goes out in our lives and the lives of other people when we sin. You may remember the story of Jesus, and it seems like such a strange, strange story. He's talking, and he's teaching, and he's basically saying, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And it seems so strange. And I, by the way, I don't think Jesus meant by that for his disciples to go do that. And you know the reason why? As far as I know, all of the disciples had both hands and both eyes. It wasn't, it wasn't about that, but he's basically saying this. If you understood... Which, by the way, you don't, disciples. If you understood the devastating consequences of one sin, one disobedience, then you would, you would cut off and throw out, and you would know you would be far ahead by losing a hand or not. That's how devastating it is. And you know what? I speak for myself. Most of the time, we don't think that rebellion is that, that bad or that devastating. But God says, look at the world around you. Look at the devastation. Look at the brokenness. Look at the disease. It affects everything. It affects the tectonic plates. It affects the genetics of our lives. It affects the way we relate to each other. Sin breaks and destroys. And it's not God's fault. It's ours. So that talks a little bit about evil, where evil comes from. And this hard part is, is looking in the mirror. And when we say, God, why? Why is there evil? Why is it here? The question is answered back. Look in the mirror. It's, it's you guys. And we don't want to hear that message. We, would, we ask the question because we want to kind of throw the blame on God. And as he often does, he brings the question back to us. Where did it come from? So that we can take responsibility. At the heart of evil in this world is this balance. This reality of between freedom and consequences. 
I don't know if you've thought about this a whole lot, but, but God, you know, it, it, you could think, well, God, could you create a world in which there was no evil? And I think the answer is yes, God could have created that world, but he would have had to control everything you think, do, say, and act. Everything. And God chose to, I think what the scriptures say pretty clearly by the storyline, is to give freedom, but also to interact consequences. You, you have freedom to do right, and when you do right, not always, but most of the time, good things will happen. You have the freedom to do wrong, but there are also negative consequences to you and to other people as you do. Genesis 2 and 3, as we mentioned before, have that balance of freedom and consequences. It's a reality. All throughout the scripture, it's a reality in our life as we grow up, isn't it? Maybe you remember growing up and you do things that your parents said don't do, and usually they just didn't turn away and say, oh, well. They said, okay, you lose your allowance. You can't go out for a week or whatever. They use consequences to teach us what's wrong and to live in a way that's, well, that's better and right. You know, if you walk out in, in the front of a car, you'll learn the, uh, the freedom to walk out and the consequences of mass and velocity upon your flesh and blood. Right? Science talks about this all the time, isn't it? About consequences and action and how it affects us. It is the way the world is. And yet we want freedom without consequences. Or we want freedom with the consequences that we want to the exclusion of the consequences we don't like. We want freedom and the power to determine the consequences. Something, by the way, we don't have. And so we yell, God, it is not fair. God, this is not right. We should be free to determine what happens. God, we should be. We should be God. That's what we're really saying oftentimes. You're not doing it right. And if I was in that seat, I'd do it right. Really? By the way, God is not looking for a replacement. He is not searching for someone to fill the job because he needs a vacation or he's tired or um, whatever. He's not, you know, just so you know, the job is not open. And yet God invites us to ask the question. He invites us to feel his frustration and his anger about what is wrong in the world. But as people, we're not very consistent. Sometimes we want God to determine things, don't we? We want to make God, we pray and we ask God, God, make sure this won't happen. We say, God, determine that it won't happen. And other times we kind of say, God, don't get involved because I want to do what I want to do. I hope, you, I don't know, I hope you can kind of laugh at yourself sometimes, you know? Not like the, haha, you're funny, but haha, you're strange. Laugh. <laughs> Like, I'm not very consistent as a human being because that is the clearer picture of who we are and the way we walk through this life. And God oftentimes is trying to bring us to a place of consistency. Say, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Both of these work together. Real freedom means the possibility of evil. And in our world, that possibility has become a reality. So where does that leave us with God? Why does God allow evil? What are the options? Well, I think the options are pretty clear. They're, they're, option number one is God doesn't exist. Therefore, we're, there's freedom and consequences exist in a vacuum of right and wrong. There isn't a right or wrong. They're just it, it is what is. You do something this that shouldn't be done, something bad happens, there is no God, so shh, don't have to worry about that. A lot of people take that direction. 
Another option is that God exists but is unable to restrain human freedom. He's not powerful enough to do it. He can influence us through love, but he can't stop us. He's not powerful enough to make those changes. A third option is God exists but doesn't know what's going to happen. So he can only respond to evil. He doesn't know the future. So he doesn't know what you and I are going to do. So when it happens, all he can do is try to fix it as best he can. Option number four is that God exists but doesn't care. Or it really doesn't have a purpose in mind. He just kind of created the world like the watch and kind of just watches. But doesn't intervene. It doesn't really have a purpose. The last option, and there are probably more, is that God cares. And he is restoring this world and humanity in a way that is quite unfamiliar and oftentimes unseen to our eyes. In a way that we can't, can't figure out. But that he does care. And that he is active. And to be honest, this is the answer that the Bible gives us about what God is doing about evil. Is that he is engaged, he knows, he's fully aware, he's fully capable, and he's at work. We just can't see how or in what way that God is at work. He is bringing evil one day to an end while still preserving freedom. In fact, one of the theories of why God allows evil is basically this. Is this world is the only way or the best way to the best possible worlds. In other words, you can't get to that world in which there is freedom but no evil without going through a world in which evil comes in and is seen for what it really is. So that in the future, no one wants to do it. You may not buy that theory, but it's an interesting way of trying to look at what is going on. The Bible reflects both people's frustrations with the reality of evil. Why, God? And how God is dealing with that evil. How long, God? It also says that God is at work in restraining evil, in restoring the world, and in creating a new kind of humanity that is prepared for a world without evil. Three things I want to just bring to your attention, and then I want to move towards a close for us as we come to the table. The first is this. God is restraining evil. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that the reality that beyond what we see and what we interact with and what's happening, that the world would be a lot worse, could be a lot worse, and would be, apart from the fact that God is restraining the evil that is happening? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, hints at this reality. But you see it in other places in the New Testament and the Old Testament, where God stops or restrains evil from happening. You know, therefore, there's some things we don't know. We don't know why. We don't know, you know, how evil in this world or how God restrains. We don't know how God is doing that. We can't see it. And we don't know the reasons why God chooses to restrain some evil and, and to not restrain other evil. But the scriptures seem to say pretty clearly that God is restraining evil in certain ways in certain times. What we do know is that God calls us to a life of faith. Acting and living with certainty about something we cannot be sure about, but that He tells us is real. In other words, He tells us, I want you to pray like it makes a difference. I don't want you just to get up and say words and, and pray and ask for me to work and to, to accomplish and to bring goodness, and we'll just go through that. Well, you can pretend, and I'll pretend that I'm listening and doing something. He says, no, pray. Ask, and you shall receive. 
Pray. And it will make a difference. There is a sense that we are invited to participate in God restraining evil and bringing good in this world. He tells us to live like it makes a difference. That when we do good, it makes a bigger difference than when we don't care and we do whatever we want to do. Live like it makes a difference. And believe that evil is not just the last word, but that ultimately can be transformed. God doesn't tell us how He restrains evil or why He lets it happen. But through different books and different places, He shows us that He does. One place that that's clear is in a very long, very difficult book called Job. If you make it to the end of the book, which is hard to do, Job has a rough time. And he has a big question, God, why? Why, 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 why? At the end of the book... He has an encounter with God. And you know what? One thing that disappears in that encounter is the why. He doesn't have a why anymore. He just has an amazement for who God is. He does not need an answer. Because he has encountered the reality of who God is. It's enough. And I think sometimes we need that with God. An encounter in which we can live without the answer. Because God is good enough. The second thing that God is doing is He is restoring the world. The work of God in this world um, has at its center God who is restoring, even though it seems slow and haphazard to us. From our perspective, we can't see how everything fits together. We don't see oftentimes when things go right and they could have gone wrong. You know, The reality is you and I drive around Luxembourg and we probably think we're a pretty good driver and that most other people are not as good as us, but they're okay. And we have no idea how many times potentially God has saved us from an accident. For whatever reason. See, we don't know the evil that doesn't happen. We just know the evil that does happen. But that God is restoring this world. In Genesis 3, where we talked about before the fall and the introduction of evil, there's also the seeds of hope. It says in that passage that God will crush the evil one and the evil that comes. That one day, it will be crushed. It will no longer be powerful. Genesis 12, God picks Abram, a man through whom he will bless all the nations of the earth. Moses then brings people into a covenant with God. A place of refuge from evil, a place of blessing. That's what a covenant is. And then Jesus comes and extends that covenant to all people by saying, God so loved this evil, this evil world. That's what the word world means. In John 3.16. Not just this nice, pretty, created world. The evil world. God so loved the evil world that He gave His Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And each miracle of Jesus is a restoration. It's It's not going outside of the natural. It's bringing things back the way they should be. People see. Hands are restored. Lives are put back together. Life is given out of death. It's a restoration. It's not contrary to nature. It's bringing God's nature back into the world. And then Romans 8.21 basically says that that God is restoring people and creation one day. That that restoration will be complete. The last thing that God is doing 
in the midst of this evil is he is creating a new kind of humanity that are prepared for a life beyond this evil world. When we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord, we become a new person in Christ. That's what the Scripture said. We become new, different, alive to God, dead to ourselves. The old part of us is gone, and forgiveness and newness, restoration is here. Sin no longer has a power and domination over us, although we can continue to fall into it and live into it. We can also say no. We embark on a new life of walking with God and trusting Him. We turn away from the old influences, what we crave, what the Bible calls the flesh, what the world says is really great and wonderful, that's the world, and the evil that is contrary to God. That's what it says by the devil. And we live life with God. We listen, we learn, we trust, we love, we follow, and we enjoy. And we embrace a new unexpected reality that God can take evil, which, by the way, is always bad. Evil is never good. And evil never comes from God's hands, what the Scriptures say. But He can take what is evil and He has and produce good in our lives and in this world. In other words, evil is not wasted. Romans 8.28 says this, if I can find it. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them a right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. God does not say evil is good, but He promises to take the evil that happens to us if we are related and connected to Him and build goodness into us and into others through it. God's ultimate purpose in this world is your happiness? No. Your coolness? No. Your richness? No. His ultimate purpose in this world is to make you and me like Jesus. In our character, to be like Christ. That's what it says. He could, that He can use even the evil of this world to make our character to be like Christ. And to prepare ourselves for that day when we will share... And here's the mind-blowing thing. Wrap your mind around this, this week. That who will share completely His glory, His perfection. He's going to share it with us. That the evil that happens to us, God can use to prepare us for that day. Does it seem too hard to believe that God can take evil and make it into good? Look at the cross. What do you see on the cross? You see Jesus dying on the cross, the only innocent victim that there ever was. None of the rest of us are ever innocent. We may not be guilty of what was charged, but we're never innocent. But He is innocent. And He is crucified. And in His death, He honored God. He glorified Himself and is a means to our rescue as humanity and through creation. Those are some pretty good things that happened at the death of Christ. We were freed from the penalty of sin. We were freed from the power of sin. We were freed to love and know God. We were freed from the judgment that we deserve. We were freed from guilt. We're freed from our past. 
we're free to live in the grace and the goodness of God. All those good things and more came to us because of the evil done to Jesus. God can take evil and bring good out of it. Although God created a world where evil could and did enter in, He hates it. He has judged it and will deal with it justly. And God in His own way and own time is restoring the world and dealing both with evil and with evil people, with us. Jesus came to pay for that evil so that we would not have to. He came to show us that even in the midst of evil, God can work. All is not lost. There is more going on than we can see. Thank God. There is more going on. God and Jesus has dealt, has dealt the death blow to evil. Someday it will no longer be seen or experienced. Even now He is restraining it. And in the life of a Christian, God promises that He can bring good even out of the evil that happens to us. We are free to continue in evil if we choose. But we are freed to embrace the one who deals with evil and restores. But no matter what we do, God is at work through our failures, both in action and in lack of action. When we look around, we are reminded that we need a Savior. When we look within, we are reminded that we need a Savior. Jesus say, He says, receive me. I will rescue you. And I will take the evil that happens to you And I won't make that evil go away, but I will produce goodness in you and through you to others. It will not be wasted. And he says, by the way, I'm the only one that can do that. Only God. Let us embrace him. Let us follow him and live into these teachings so that we can be transformed. And let us come to the table of restoration and recommit ourselves to this God although we don't understand and although we have all kinds of questions who gives life and who speaks truth sometimes even beyond what we can understand so let us come to the table with our questions let them come to the table with the faith that we have let us come to the table with our hope even if that hope is small and let us come to the table with the love of God in our hearts, because that's what it is. It's bread for us. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, so often when we ask our questions, we don't expect them to come back to us. But they do. That although we have not caused all of the evil, it's not personally my fault or someone else's fault. We are a part of the problem, whether we are Christians or not. And we thank you that you are able to work through us and around us. You are able to transform us and restore us. And that our consistency does not keep your plan from being accomplished. Your glory to be shared. We thank you that one day evil will be gone. And what we have longed for 
will come. Thank you that in the death of Christ, we got to see that out of evil, good can come. Let us come to that table again being reminded that the, the wine represents the blood of Christ poured out the life given so we might live. That the bread reflects the body of Christ which was crushed for us so that we might share as a brother his life. That we might know you. And Lord, help us to be agents, men and women who live in a way that honors and pleases you by your Spirit. Lead us to this table in humility, with joy, and with a heart to turn back to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Lord's table. It does not belong to any church or any people or any age or any time, but it belongs to Jesus Christ himself who, when he met with his disciples, said, This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. Come, take, receive. Recommit yourself to the reality of intimacy and life with God. And he said, this is my body broken for you because I love you. And I want you to have life. So as you come, come with thankful hearts. Come in humility. Come with joy. Because God loves you and he is dealing with what is most broken so that we might share in the greatness of His glory, although we don't deserve it. If you know Christ, whether you would normally uh, take communion here, if you would take communion in your own church, then we invite you to come to participate. When you're ready, come.